Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter once again today. Continue our study of this letter and conclude our examination and consideration of the first chapter. Uh, Peter has thus far reminded us of our position and status in Christ. He's challenged us to make our calling and election sure by living out the spirit-empowered uh, virtues or traits that are there listed in the middle of this chapter, such as virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, love, brotherly affection. In our last study together, in verses 12 through 15, immediately preceding the text in view today, Peter speaks as a pastor who commits to a ministry of constant reminding based on the Word of God. If last week's or last message's title was the pastor's passion and purpose, this week would certainly be the pastor's power, the Word of God. And of course, the Word of God is not just the pastor's power, but it's the tool to be used to sanctify the people of God. And so it is your ongoing power, the Word of God itself. And here as a pastor, Peter writes and certainly gives model for those of us who are called to be elders, but it certainly gives us important, I would say even necessary insight for each of us as believers. Let's hear now God's word, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a, li a lamp shining in a dark place, till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this insightful and most important passage as it relates to your holy word. I pray, Father, that you would renew our confidence this day in your word. I pray that you would ignite a passion in each of us to seek your word, to immerse ourselves in your word, to live by your word, memorize your word, study your word, realizing it contains what we need for life. And I pray, Father, we would not take this lightly. I ask that you would give me words that are faithful to your word, that anything that I might say that is not in accord with it would pass from my dear brothers and my dear sisters' ears, let knowing that only your word is power. And that is what we need today, and we need it every day. We need it every second of every day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject of today's text and sermon is why I went into the ministry. There is no doubt in my mind there are many other things I'd rather be doing if this truth were not true. Many other things. In fact, I would suggest it's a waste of time to be in the pulpit if the Word of God is not truly the power the pastor has. Many other things we could be doing. All of us should just go home if it's not true that this is God's revealed Word. Or you should definitely be listening to someone other than me 
John Owen spoke to my heart many years ago, continues to to this day, but when he said what the duty of the pastor is, it has never left me. Hear what Owen said. Many years ago, still holds today. He said the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. It is a promise relating to the New Testament that God would give unto his church pastors according to his own heart, which should feed them with knowledge and understanding. He's referencing Jeremiah 3. Owen continues, this is by teaching or preaching the word and no otherwise. This feeding is of the essence of the office of a pastor, as unto the exercise of it, so that he who doth not or cannot or will not feed the flock is no pastor, whatever outward call or work he may have in the church. Why is this subject, this passage, so important? Because the word of God is our spiritual sustenance. It's just like the food you need to live. It's what you need to live spiritually. The truths we hold near and dear and we bank on for our eternity depend on the accuracy of this book. The problems you face in your life will ultimately find their explanation and their instruction in Scripture. The promises of God which give us surety and strength, power for living, are revealed by God's prophets and apostles the deposit of which is the scriptures themselves. The daily time that you have cut out uh, to spend with God in reading your scripture is dependent on it being supernaturally derived. It's from the Holy Spirit. The fact that you teach your children to memorize it, that you memorize it, that we send them or we educate them in a way that they can understand it and have it hidden in their hearts is dependent on, it believes that it is from God. It is not just another bit of human wisdom. The way we view the world, live our lives, engage culture and society is rooted in what God has revealed by his holy word. There could be no subject of more importance to us this day, especially in this historical epoch, than the inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority, and the sufficiency of God's word. The power of any ministry is directly related to honoring the word of God. The biblical pastor, therefore, is revealed by Peter in his words. The biblical pastor has a sufficient tool for Christ-honoring ministry, it is none other than the Word of God. I want to address this in two ways. First, look at Peter personally and what he is attempting to say in his setup of the important uh, revelation that comes in verse 20 and verse 21. So I want to look at Peter as disciple, apostle, and pastor. And then from there, I want to address specifically the fact of God's Word as inspired and errant, authoritative and sufficient all tied in with verse 20 and 21. And I want to say, and I'll say it to you again later, you have to know this. This is not optional. Today would not be a day to decide to think about something else, about what you're going to do after church. You have to know this. It's that important. Uh, when, when life happens to you, uh, the only thing you'll have to go to is that which is actually from God. And so that's what we have to know about. And every child here needs to understand what it means that the Bible's inspired. Why, what does inerrancy mean? Why is it authoritative? Why is it sufficient? We have to know this. And so I begin by looking at Peter, and what he says is he believes that the people have to know this, and he is a disciple. First, he becomes an apostle, and he functions as a pastor. Now, let's consider how Peter, in verse 16 and following, sets up his authority, if you will, uh, showing that his time as a disciple, a personal learner of Jesus, an eyewitness of Jesus, how that prepared him and qualified him for apostleship, which becomes very important as it relates to the word of God. Notice verse 16. 
for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Here he's referring to uh, this kind of culture of charlatans and false teachers that are pervading. And I'll say at this point that Peter now, in this book, is going to start turning towards two main themes. The coming of Christ, which has manifold uh, fulfillments. Uh, particularly, these folks even saw judgment of God just a few years after this book. But ultimately, the coming judgment of Christ in his presence uh, that believers are aware of and it actually brings comfort to if they're in Christ. And then the other focus is false teaching. That the coming of Christ is sure. This is something you could bank on, gain encouragement, encourage from. But also, notice that false teachers are going to come in your midst. So that's why he says what he says in verse 16. We'll see it in chapter 2. But 16 again says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths or legends or fables, fictitious stories, spun tales. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's referring to uh, something he spoke in 1 Peter about the coming of Christ. But we is a reference to the other apostles. In fact, two key words in verse 16, we and eyewitnesses. That's a reference to a plurality of witnesses, the apostolic witness. People understood this. Peter's one of the disciples closest to Jesus who then was commissioned to be an apostle. Each of us can be disciples, learners of Christ. We cannot be apostles. Apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ. Uh, there's a generic small a apostle meaning messenger. Here we're talking capital A. They were commissioned by Christ. And there were only ever uh, the, uh, the 11. Judas, of course, did not make it to be an apostle. And one added to him, Matthias, and then Paul later, who was an eyewitness of the risen Christ. No other apostles other than them, than those men. And Peter speaks in terms of we were eyewitnesses. And it's not just like one person saw something. It's a plurality of witnesses that authenticates the truth of what they're going to speak and what they heard from Christ. And they began speaking in terms of Jesus' coming again in glory. And this is a theme throughout the apostolic witness, the scriptures. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. Uh, what he's saying is, we are not like those people who spun tales, who weren't with Jesus, did not walk with him, were not on the mountain, and are telling you uh, things that are divergent from this, that are false, that are, that are wrong. We were with him. So our authority comes from actually being with him. And not only was I with him, Peter says, we were with him in a special way. And Peter, unlike all other of the disciples except two, James, John, and Peter, here is a reference to the transfiguration. I won't kid you, that's one of the wildest parts of Scripture. Wild not in the sense that it's not true, but in so hard for me to fathom what it would be to have the, the Shekinah glory of God revealed in Christ to these three men. And this is a reference to the transfiguration. That's what he means in verse 17 and 18 when he speaks about being with him on the holy mountain. Here the account now, it's from Matthew 17, it's also in Luke 9 and Mark 9, but just listen to the account of Jesus transfiguring himself before Peter, James, and John. It says in Matthew 17, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents. And you can just hear Peter. This is one chance where Peter should have just been quiet. Do we not agree? And there's Peter talking. 
God being gracious. Again, Moses and Elijah there appear. Verse 5 of Matthew 17, he was still speaking. I love that. He was still speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came, touched them, and saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. There's manifold meaning behind the transfiguration, but understand why Peter's drawing on it now. He's saying, Peter, an apostle, is commissioned by Jesus. He's saying, I was on the mountain and I saw Jesus become the ultimate and final true prophet. Why do I know this? Because Moses, who has been our big prophet, he's standing there. Elijah, another great prophet of the Old Testament, figuratively understood as the prophets of the Old Testament. And they are there and, Jesus, and God says, listen to him. Talking about who? Jesus. Not Moses, not Elijah. Now, yes, Jesus affirms what Moses and Elijah says, but now Jesus confirms and fulfills all the prophetic role in himself, the ultimate prophet. So now anything that is done must be done in relationship to listening to Jesus. And so Peter, James, and John receive, really before they understand it, a commissioning about what they would then do, and they're also put on equal level with Moses and Elijah. Apostles they would be on the same level as prophets. Apostles and prophets, the chosen means that God uses to reveal his will. All subservient to the person of Christ, listen to him. That's how we know if a prophet's really a prophet. One of the ways anyways. We ourselves, a reference to the inner circle of Christ, Peter, James, and John, now there they are, seeing the transfiguration. Peter's time as a disciple prepares them then to be qualified for apostleship. But then we move uh, to this fact in verse 19, that the apostles as a whole fulfilled the Old Testament office of prophet, bringing then completion to God's written word. Verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now what we mean here is that, yes, I've been on the mount, I've seen the transfiguration. I have that special commissioning of God as an apostle. But recognize that experience in itself, we've got something more sure than that even. We've got the prophetic word that gives account of the transfiguration. But the prophetic word is not solely experience. It's the God-ordained deposit of the experiences and teaching we need. And he's saying we have the sure prophetic word. And in that time, that means the Old Testament. So he's speaking about the Old Testament now. Peter is. But what Peter's also doing kind of subconsciously, is putting himself on the same level, the rest of the apostles on the same level with the prophets who wrote the Old Testament. So now anything that comes from Peter, from Paul, from the other disciples now that have become apostles, is on equal ground with the Old Testament. So he's speaking in full terms. This is what's wonderful about the next phrase, when he says in verse 17, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, then 19, excuse me, we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to. Now he's saying as a lamp shining in a dark place. He's talking about the Old Testament at that point. He's saying by paying attention to it, you'll understand Christ. Beautiful picture of what the Word of God is in general, but even specifically the Old Testament will teach you Christ. And the the apostles can come and then give newer light on it, but you could see Christ in the Old Testament from beginning to end. And if you pay attention to it, Peter says, you'll see it. And the bright morning star will rise in your heart. And this is a reference to just a coming in contact with Christ, but Ultimately, the revelation of Christ, as he comes, the morning star rises in your hearts. And now Peter has set up a very important uh, transition now to the fact that what he writes and says, and the other apostles write and say, are on equal ground with the whole of Scripture. 
In fact, this is mimicked uh, in many places by the uh, other writers. Paul, in particular, hammers this point home. In Ephesians 2, he says this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And I take that when he says apostles and prophets, I believe that the apostles be, in a sense, supersede now the prophets. They're prophets in themselves that they've been given the special revelation of God, but there's an extra level of ability given to them by God, having been eyewitnesses to Christ himself, personally commissioned by Jesus. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke in prophetic terms of Jesus, but the apostles, the prophets in the New Testament, walk with Jesus. And so they're talking in even more vivid terms. The glass is not as dark now. Ephesians 3, 5, which in the other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by his Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Later in Ephesians 4, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that miracles and gifts of healing and helps. And he speaks of the important revelatory gifts that were unique to this period of the apostles, the life of the apostles. Then finally, in Revelation 18, verse 20, John writes, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So the constant reference to apostles and prophets together show us that the apostles, in essence, fulfill the role of the prophet as they give us the finality to the written word of God that we so desperately need. The apostles then, in light of this, served as pastors with the word of God as their powerful tool for shepherding. And I'm not an apostle who receives new revelation, but I've been given the powerful deposit of that revelation, the word of God, and it's the power of any ministry. Verse 19 shows us, if you look at it in this light, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, that's a reference to the completed Old Testament, to which you will do well to pay attention, is to a lamp shining in the darkness, an incredibly apt description of the truth of God's word in the midst of a dark culture. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, the gospel's clear in the Old Testament, and now this side of the cross, as you read the Old Testament, you'll see the fulfillment of the gospel in Christ, the morning star. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is the main tool for shepherding the flock. It's not Peter's word, it's God's word. The scripture taught and proclaimed by the pastor elicits supernatural results. Paul says as much when he writes to the Thessalonians, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. I know and I'm so appreciative of the maturity of so many of you believers who are able to listen to me and see through me and hear the word of God. And the more you know me, the more I'm impressed that you're able to do that. But that is the, the sign of maturity as we recognize that it's not so much the messenger. Don't get me wrong, there's qualifications and accountability. But ultimately, to sit here every week as one of God's sheep recognizing he'll use a broken vessel like the pastor to bring the word of God and be convicted by that despite me. The scripture taught and proclaimed. This is what elicits supernatural results. This is why Owen says in the quote I mentioned earlier, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. This is why Peter is bent on reminding, like he says in verses 12 through 15, of the word of God. Now, that's Peter, the disciple, the apostle, 
the pastor, the word of God, and I just got into verse 20 and verse 21. Now let's unpack verse 20 and verse 21. Here we see that the word of God is inspired. And be from inspiration, from the inspiration of Scripture comes then necessarily its inerrancy, its authority, its sufficiency. You can add to it necessity. You could add to it many things. But these things are most important. And I'm going to say to you again, you have to know this. You got to know it. And the quiz you'll have is the rest of your life in whether or not in hard times you will be able to stand firm. Whether this place, this church will stay firm through the ages depends on this. And not just the pastors and the elders knowing it, the people knowing it. The word of God is inspired and errant, authoritative and sufficient. I would suggest to you that the wholesale leaving of this is, is, much, to blame, is, is, is much to blame the people in the pews for putting up with it in the pulpits as it is the pulpits themselves. This is why so many pastors have abandoned what is so clearly taught by the word. Look at verse 20 and 21 with me very closely, and we'll answer some questions, answers to which you must know. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That is, it wasn't just the prophet who came up with it. Uh, God revealed it, and then he interpreted it and gave it to us. He's not like a sift that God's word comes through and then given to you. That's not what Scripture or prophecy of Scripture is. Verse 21, very specifically, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The first thing you've got to know is that the Scripture is inspired. This shows you how it's inspired. What is inspiration? I'm going to give you a few definitions some uh, godly uh, teachers in the past have given. I'm not expecting to catch everything that's said, but notice the common theme. What is inspiration? First, B.B. Warfield says, Inspiration is that extraordinary supernatural influence exerted by the Holy Ghost on the writers of our sacred books by which their words were rendered also the word of God and therefore perfectly infallible. You'll hear a constant theme of extraordinary supernatural infallibility, necessity, so forth. J.I. Packer says, A supernatural providential influence of God's Holy Spirit upon the human authors which caused them to write what he wished to be written for the communication of revealed truth to others. Louis Burkhoff said, that supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Holy Spirit, by virtue of which their writings are given divine truthfulness and constitute an infallible and sufficient rule of faith and practice. Finally, G.T. Manley says, that activity of the Holy Spirit, through which he mysteriously filled the human spirit, the biblical writers, and guided and overruled them so that there arose an infallible spirit-wrought writing, a sacred record, a book of God with which the Spirit of God evermore organically unites himself. Now, the scripture before us gives us the mode of inspiration, how he does it. But before that, remember the fact of inspiration. The scripture claims itself to be from God. And Paul says this most clearly when writing to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired, that is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out by God. It literally means coming forth from one's breath. And just as you can breathe on a piece of glass, and while you'll not know everything there is to know about the person who breathed in the glass, you can take DNA and you can tell a lot about them. So the scripture gives us all we need to know about God. Breathed out from him. That's the fact of inspiration. 
the mode or the way it was done, that's what we have here. And it's, it's essential you know this. No prophecy was produced by the will of man, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have many uh, sizable bodies of water in the wonderful state of Kansas. I love Kansas for many other reasons, but water is not one of them. In fact, that pond may be the biggest thing within about 10 square miles that's of a body of water. Well, growing up in Lake Erie and Lake Ontario where they meet, we go to the shore there, very windy, and you would see sailboats all throughout, especially this time of the year. And it amazed me that the size of these yachts that could be driven by sails, and this huge sail would billow, it would just be filled with air and moved it along. It would fill with air like a, just a huge sail and move that huge ship along. Well, that's a picture of what inspiration is. God fills the writer of Scripture, keeping intact his distinctive personality and literary style, and moves him along to say exactly what he wants without error. He keeps Peter's personality. He keeps John's personality. He keeps Paul's personality. He kept Moses' personality. But he moved them along, overruling any possibility that they would not say the word of God. And he carried them. That's what it means to carry them along. That's how we know. They did not just sit, as some may think, and, and be in some transitive state, and God moved their hand in there. That's not how he did it. He built the person from the beginning, and at that particular moment, moved them along to write exactly what he wanted revealed. That's the mode of inspiration. The claim itself is throughout the scripture. Jesus says in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, because it's supernatural, it can make people holy, attendant with the Spirit of God. Jesus says also in Mark 12, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? The scriptures and the power of God put in the same level. And of course, what I referenced earlier, 1 Thessalonians 2, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. It's amazing to me, and I think it should be to all of us, that some 40 authors, all of them, spread out over 1,600 years at least, have such a unified message in spite of their great diversity in language, culture, and time. There's a reason for that. The same Holy Spirit inspired them. In fact, there is not multiple authors of Scripture. There's really one primary author of Scripture, the one who inspired the human authors, the eternal God. That's what inspiration is. Well, then what is inerrancy? Got to know this. Well, inerrancy comes naturally from it. If God is the one who authors it and inspires it, if you will, then it's going to be without error. It's from a perfect God. If the Spirit of God superintends, then it will necessarily be free from error. Now, let me be clear. The translation you have right here is 99% accurate to what it is that Paul and Peter and John actually wrote. Uh, the reason we don't have the exact autographs but we have supernaturally far more manuscript evidence and ability to put together what we have than any other comparable document in the history of the world. It's not even close. In fact, when I talk about percentages, as we trace it back and watch the, the, the wonderful translation process and how God keeps it, some of you maybe got to see the Dead Sea Scrolls where they're here, and you understand that it shows just a, a little glimpse of the picture of how things are translated over years and years and years, without, kept without major variants of any sort. And the variances we're talking about are not anything that would speak to or harm doctrines. They're, they're very small matters. 
that even the one who doesn't believe will say, is this book as compared to any other book, it's 99% sure what we have is exactly what Paul wrote. In that light, we can trust it. It's inspired. It's without error. And based on a wonderful statement given, in 1978, uh, a group got together to pen a document called a statement on biblical inerrancy in Chicago. And listen to just a, a few snippets of what they say, and it captures the biblical teaching and reality so well. They said in this, God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired the Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. They go on to say, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches, and is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed, and as God's command in all that it requires, embraced, as God's pledge in all that it promises. And finally, the last segment on their shorter statement, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. So it is without error, as it flows from its inspiration, it's also then authoritative. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who died in 1981, lived to see an unfortunate trend, and that was the creeping in of liberalism into the seminaries and then through the ministers. And he noticed a trend in the last 20 years of his life in particular where more and more were coming into the pulpit without this view of Scripture. And he said this, and these were prophetic words just a few years before he died. We all, therefore, have to face this ultimate and final question. Do we accept the Bible as the Word of God, as the sole authority in all matters of life and practice, or do we not? Is the whole of my thinking governed by Scripture, or do I come with my reason and pick and choose out of Scripture and sit in judgment upon it, putting myself and modern knowledge forward as the ultimate standard and authority? The issue is crystal clear. Do I accept Scripture as revelation from God, or do I trust to speculation, human knowledge, human learning, human understanding, and human reasons? Or putting it still more simply, do I pin my faith to and subject all my thinking to what I read in the Bible, or do I defer to modern knowledge, to modern learning, to what people think today, or what we know at this present time, which was not known in the past? It is inevitable that we occupy one or the other of these two positions. And if we occupy the position that I trust you occupy, that it is God's word, then it is authoritative. It is the authority over all of our lives. And that we should go to it for any direction that we need. Because it has that authority, it has that place in our lives. This leads to its sufficiency. How is the Bible sufficient? So if I ask you in the hall, you'll know what inspiration is, you'll know what inerrancy is, you'll know what authority is, and you'll know finally how it's sufficient. It's sufficient flowing from this, that is, if it's truly God's word and it's authoritative, it's what we need. Now, turn in the back of your hymnal to page 847. This will keep you on the edge of your seat a bit, or at least awake. 847, the starting page of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think this is the greatest statement, humanly speaking, on such matter. It makes logical sense that the writers of the Confession of Faith would start with Scripture as the foundation. Look at chapter 1 on page 847, section 1, on Scripture. 
Look what it says. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary to salvation. You can see nature, no God made everything, but you can't get saved with that knowledge. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and to declare that will his uh, that his will unto his church, and afterwards for the better preser preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan in the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. It starts at section 2 under the name of Holy Scripture, the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, and he names all 66. They name all 66. In the last sentence of section 2, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule, the rule of faith and life. Not just religious matters, faith and life. The Bible is sufficient, utterly sufficient for all we need. J.I. Packer, speaking in a little booklet called The Word of God, he laments at the fact that pastors who affirm this still are, are just kind of reducing themselves to silliness in the pulpits to get people to come in. Not believing that the inherent power of his ministry is actually the Word of God and faithfulness to it. Thinking somehow they've got to craft it in some other way so people will actually like it. And listen to what Packer says. Certainly about the great issue, uh, certainty about the great issues of Christian faith and conduct is lacking all along the line. The outside observer sees us, the church, as staggering on from gimmick to gimmick and stunt to stunt like so many drunks in a fog, not knowing at all where we, are, where we are or which way we should be going. Preaching is hazy, heads are muddled, hearts fret, doubts drain, uh, drain strength, uncertainty paralyzes action. Unlike the first century Christians who in three centuries won the Roman world and those later Christians who pioneered the Reformation and the Puritan Awakening and the Evangelical Revival and the great missionary movement of the last century, unlike those, we lack certainty. This brings us back to verse 20 and verse 21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. Child of God, you must know this. Because of this, immerse yourself in the study of it. Sit under the preaching of it. Give yourself to scouring it. Teach it to your children diligently now, not later. Go to Scripture first. Instead of exhausting all other options and then going to Scripture, exhaust Scripture first. Pour over the Word of God. Pour over the person of Christ. Meditate long on Christ. And as a church, never ever vote to ordain a man who does not hold to the inspiration and errancy of Scripture. Never. As a congregation, do not tolerate a humanistic view of the Bible that says it's just one of many other books. And don't blame the seminaries or me for it, because if you sit here and listen to it, you deserve it. And that's what's happening everywhere. This is too important a matter to let go. It's how things start to go. Why is this subject so important? The Word of God is our spiritual sustenance. The truths we hold near and dear to our eternity depend on the accuracy of this book. You know what my biggest confidence of the future is? Is that if this church stays true to this, long beyond where we are here, 
God will continue to grow this church's influence. I don't know how many members that means, but I know its influence is immensely powerful. It only took a few disciples to turn the world upside down. So people committed to this, God can use in a way that is just astronomical. But you know what my biggest fear and my biggest anxiety is? That there would be some day that after all this effort in building this edifice, that there'd be some person who would stand up there and preach something other than this is the word of God and that people would take it. That's my biggest fear. I, I honestly think about, could there be a day? I mean, think of all these institutions and think of the ones that have been faithful because you could think of a lot less of them than you can that have gone. I mean, Princeton used to be the, the very base for the things I'm preaching here is as apostate as a day is long now. You go there, you'll be lucky if you believe anything when you leave. Why are we so much better? Are we? It depends on what we're saying here today, that we hold true to this, that there will be a day 100 years from now that that pulpit is still preaching the same kinds of things you're hearing today. In fact, I have uh, a placard that's super glued on the top of this I put in several years ago. It has the five solas of the Reformation, starting with by Scripture alone. That's awesome. I'm glad it's here, but I've decided we're doing something different executive decision. We're putting something different in the new pulpit. And here are the three verses that will be in the pulpit. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like glue those things in so they can never... I mean, someone's going to have to get a chisel to take them out. This is, these are the three verses, and I'll close with this. 2 Timothy 3.16 will be the first. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and for training in righteousness. Second verse. 2 Peter 1.21 for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the third verse, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, for it is truth. I pray that we would not lose hold of this reality, that we would recognize the very serious truth that any church that is married to the spirit of the age will be a widow in the next. I pray, God, that you would hold us fast to your word, that we would never say more than it says, but only say what it says, and be confident with this, teaching our children this, modeling this, and seeing the world transformed by this. And Lord, at the very personal, practical level, that we have confidence knowing you have given us your word. When so many wander aimlessly, you've given your children clear guidance, assurance, promises. I pray, Lord, that everyone here would walk out knowing these things to bring glory to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.